Good People, Cool Things is a podcast featuring conversations with entrepreneurs, writers, musicians, and other creatives. Get inspired by their stories to do your own cool thing. And here's your host, Joey Held. Welcome to Good People, Cool Things. Today's guest is going on a journey. She's taken us along with her and all of the cool stops and people she found along the way. She is Sarah Dykeman, the founder of Beyond a Book, an adventure-linked education project connecting real-time adventures to classrooms and giving all kinds of fun learning opportunities for students to explore their planet. Beyond a Book is on their fourth project called Butterbike, and Sarah has channeled that into Bicycling with Butterflies, my 10,201-mile journey following the monarch migration. 10,201 miles, that's a lot. I mean, that's uh, that's probably the understatement of the year, but that's that's a lot to ride. Sarah rode from Mexico to Canada and all the way back and had so many fun adventures along the way. We're talking about some of them, her best meal along the trip, what it's like getting a flat tire while you're doing this, all of the awesome monarch adventures and stories that she has along the way. And so many good reminders in here to take a look around you and, and really experience what you're seeing. Don't just see it, but like embrace it. And I know as soon as I'm done recording this and editing this episode, I'm heading outside and it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be glorious and it's going to be wonderful. And I encourage all of you to do the same. If you'd like to support good people, cool things, you can Head on over to the merch shop, goodpeoplecoolthings.com slash shop. You can also sponsor the podcast. Send an email to joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com and reach all kinds of fantastic people with your message. Get into some social action, some email newsletters. And speaking of social, you can follow Good People Cool Things at GPCT Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Always love hearing from you and sharing what you have to say. For now, let's hop into this conversation with Sarah. For people who don't know who you are, can you give us your elevator pitch? But can you also share what kind of elevator we're riding on while you're telling us about yourself? Oh boy, an elevator. I haven't been on an elevator in, gosh, years, I have to say. So I would. I don't ha- have a lot of experience, but I'll say a normal elevator. <laughs> <laughs> perfect, perfect. Maybe in like a a museum or something. But my elevator pitch is that my name is Sarah and I rode my bicycle following the monarch migration from Mexico to Canada and back. And the goal was to be a voice for the monarch. And about halfway through, I realized I had a lot to say and people wanted to listen. So I wrote a book called Bicycling with Butterflies. Ding. I love what I love when the sound effects get thrown in too. It's always a good touch. <laughs> that was the elevator. I actually have a pretty hilarious elevator story from my trip. So I navigated from Mexico to Canada. I found these amazing dirt roads. I was in the middle of nowhere often and and then I make it to New York City and I stay with this this wonderful couple. I actually met the woman, her name's Erica, I met her in Mexico. She was a tourist visiting as well. And she said, oh, when you get to New York City, you should she, you should stay with me. And I think she kind of invited me only half asking or half, half, half thinking I'd actually show up. But there I was, I, I made it. And then one day I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna brave New York City just on, with it by, by the subway. And I leave my bike in her apartment and I take off and I, the adventure un, unfolds. And then on my way home, I 
someone holds the door open for me so I don't have to use a key to get into her building. And then I get in the elevator and I go to the 32nd floor and I'm walking to her apartment and the key doesn't fit. And that's when I realized I had just gone completely to the wrong building. <laughs> like I was in the wrong building. And I thought, wow, I, I can follow Monarchs 10,000 miles, but I cannot navigate New York City. <laughs> <laughs> I, as someone who has also gotten lost within New York City, I empathize completely with that. <laughs> so going way back to the beginning, because I'm, I'm sure this wasn't like an impromptu, hey, I'm just going to do this. There's certainly some a foundation there beforehand and a, a fondness and interest in butterflies and uh, monarchs and their their migration patterns through that. So what was the first time we were like, wait, I want to learn more about this. Like, this is super cool. I have always been fascinated by animals. I actually studied wildlife biology at, at college. And I, I've just always been interested in the little secrets. So all and all the animals that are often overlooked. So my favorite animal is the frog, actually. I love frogs and snakes and bugs and all the all those type of creatures. And the idea to follow the monarch actually started as an idea to just visit the monarchs. I, I was actually biking across Mexico with a friend and we were going to go see the monarchs where they overwinter, but the timing was wrong. And they live about 10,000 feet above sea level, the monarchs do in the winter. So we looked at our map and we thought, I don't think we want to bike up a mountain if the monarchs probably won't be there. So we kind of skirted around the area. But I, I kind of, I, I just wanted to see the monarchs. And so I thought, I'm going to return. And somehow, over the course of about two years of the idea kind of just sitting with me, and it turned from an idea to, to go visit the monarchs to, to ride my bike and follow them. And, and I think a large part of that kind of transition from a visit to a long trip was learning a little bit about, more about them. And, and they, they just kept calling calling to me. And, and one of the things I do on my adventures is I try and connect to schools, but with presentations and videos. And I found out that the monarch was already in schools. People, or excuse me, teachers are using them to teach about science and metamorphosis and to grow gardens and et cetera, et cetera. And so that was like an obvious like, whoa, look, this is this is a good opportunity. And then I also learned that the monarchs are suffering serious declines. And I thought, well, this could be my way to help. This could be my way to kind of shine a spotlight on on this important creature and have fun doing it. Absolutely. And was the the biking element to it, were you already a an avid bike rider that would, would go on, you know, hundred mile trips at a time? Yes. By the, when after before my butterfly trip, uh, rewinding, I did a, a trip from from Bolivia and South America to Texas. That was a 10,000 mile trip with a friend that took about a year. And then before that, I did a, a trip with three friends from college and sometimes four friends in the summer. And our goal was to bike to every state but Hawaii, um, the ever United State. And so and that took it took about a year as well. And then I've done a few other a little multi-month trips, but by canoe and on foot as well. So I was I knew actually that I could I could do the miles and I knew I was I knew kind of what what, what I was getting myself into. Um, but I learned so much about the monarch and for me the what I learned and the biggest surprise was that there was just this amazing network of people that invited me in and there's this it's this team taking care of the monarch and they just adopted me and 
took care of me and, and made my trip way, way bigger than I was expecting it to be. That's super cool. I, I love stories like that of just people being like so into the cause and what you're doing and just kind of like you're saying, like adopting you as one of their own. And it's so awesome to see. Yeah, it's funny because so my, my trip was about following the monarchs. And in a lot of ways, I think the monarch and I actually did have a really similar experience. And I, I look at all the places I stayed and I'm inside getting fed these delicious meals and I'm getting a shower and a, and a place, you know, and a comfy bed for the night. And then I look out the window and it's like, oh, and these are the people with with gardens in their front yard and they're feeding the monarchs. And, and so I think the monarchs and I leave those places just with some relief and gratitude. And, and the more places like that, the easier the monarch trip will be and the easier my trip was. So I'm just so just so thankful for their support. And logistics wise, because I I'd like to think my of myself as a little bit of a planner on trips. I'm not I'm not mapping out every single step of the way, but you know, knowing lodging and, and if there's tours or anything, planning that ahead of time. Did you have sort of I, I don't know if I guess goals maybe is the, the right word of where you wanted to be at certain points of the trip or was it this is my target but if I you know if I'm still feeling good I'll go past it or if I you know it's a a hotter day or something like maybe maybe I'll chill and hang back a little bit right I had a very tentative big picture so I like I knew I wanted to be in Mexico and I wanted to leave in March and I knew I wanted to be in Canada in the summertime. And I knew I wanted to try and get back to, to Mexico by November when the monarchs arrive. And then I had, I, as, as my trip went, people heard about me and they would invite me to do presentations. And so at some point it would be like, oh, in 500 miles, I need to be in Kansas City on, I forget, whatever day I was in Kansas City for this presentation. And so then I'd have to start kind of planning a little, I'd have to start kind of paying attention to the miles a little bit more. But from the day-to-day aspect, I would often wake up in the morning with no idea where I was going to go. And you're right, it would depend on on the wind, more temp, less temperature and more on the wind. So if I had a, a rip and tailwind, I could go 20 miles an hour all day and just, I wouldn't want to stop. And then other days, the wind would be in my face. And you could be in like your smallest or your easiest gear with your head down, charging into the wind and you'd look at your little speedometer and telling you the how fast you're going and it would just say like a heartbreaking like six miles an hour <laughs> and you could do that all day. So I paid attention to the wind and because my, so I have a bike that's an old beater, beat up mountain bike and I, I had panniers on it or bike bags. In fact, my rear bags are made from old kitty litter buckets. And in those bags, I carried everything I needed so that I could eat when I was hungry and sleep when I was tired. And I did a lot of people, cycle tourists often call it guerrilla camping. It's just where you find a spot off the road. And it's, it's not an official camp spot, but it's a, a piece of earth that's usually flat, hopefully, <laughs> that can be, be your home for the night. Very nice, very nice. Also, just I, I'm always so impressed just on the packing side of things on this as well, of how, how compact you can get things in that still, like you're saying, keep you fed and, and give you a place to sleep. That's fantastic. And so I've done trips, by um, backpacking trips as well, and biking, you can be a lot more luxurious. So I had some luxuries. I had, I have this little like folding chair, which is great. So you can kind of, you know, your back is tired after a long day. You can kind of relax while you're making dinner. And then I had a computer so I could do presentations 
and do slideshows and write blogs and all of that, which was a, a bit of a luxury. So when I, I actually gave presentations to kids and I'd say, I brought a sofa and then I'd show them my little camp chair and I brought an entertainment system and I'd show them the computer and I, I, I made do with what I had. And oh, and then I'd show them my pillow. That was the fanciest. And I'd hold up um, this empty bag and then I'm like, this will become my pillow. And then I'd stuff, I would like stuff my rain gear in there or any warm clothes I wasn't using that night. And voila, I'd have a pillow. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned how there were times where you're planning to get, we'll use Kansas City as the example again, to get to Kansas City by a certain time. Was there ever a time where maybe the wind was crazier for a couple of days and you're like, arriving just before you have to give a presentation or did you never run into a situation like that i i cut it close a few times but i would usually have like a three days and so i could look at the weather and be like okay tomorrow is gonna we're gonna have great tailwinds so i'm gonna go as long as i can because the next day it's looking like there's rain and a, and a headwind and so i I always made it to my presentations, which is actually, I don't think, you know, people are like, wow, you bike 10,000 miles. And sometimes it's like, for me, it's like, yeah, but the hard part was arranging a presentation and, and showing up. And, you know, I, I didn't charge for my presentations. If I was to a school or, or a nature center or something, I'd, I'd just ask if they could put a shout out to the community and find me a place to spend the night so that I would kind of always arrive a little bit earlier. And then that way I could also get a shower. <laughs> Nice, nice. Yeah, that seems like a fair trade. <laughs> it was, and it was great. It, it, I met so many wonderful people. I, I actually fought really hard in my book to keep a very long acknowledgments section. It's longer, I think, than any any book I've ever read. I think it's seven pages, but it was important to me to acknowledge, like, this was a solo trip, but I was helped by, like, literally thousands of people. Like, thousands made my trip possible by coming to my presentations, I counted the other day. I stayed at I stayed at sixty eight different family wow. with six sixty eight different families. So that was a that was a large part because I was doing the presentations. And so I at some point realized it was like wow, like the monarchs are helping me in so many ways, right? Like I I am being their voice. I am spreading their telling their story and helping spread the conservation message. And they're thanking me with all these amazing opportunities. And so the more I help the monarchs, the more the monarchs help me, which I think is really beautiful and inspiring. Yeah, for sure. And we were talking before we started recording about going off on tangents, and I've got a couple for you based on okay. your journey. <laughs> Although I think they're still, they're still, I think, tangentially related at least. So maybe they, <laughs> they're, they're semi-tangents. But for one, out of the 68 places that you stayed at, what was the most unusual meal that someone made for you? You know, I think actually uh, um, it wasn't the most unusual, but it was a funny story about staying with people and the food they fed me. And it started in Southern Ontario. And I actually originally wasn't going to go to Southern Ontario because it was not on my route. But I just got these emails from these wonderful women that were telling me about all the things they do to help support the monarchs. And I could just tell that I needed to go there. And one of my theories was go where the energy is because they're going to be the ones that are going to make things happen. And you want to also support their efforts too. So I went and they were just so excited. And I think I did like five or six presentations in eight days. And I, I ate so much good food, but 
but they were, I realized about halfway through my stay that they were like really keeping an eye on me because I remember the first woman I stayed with, I, I specifically remember her asking, do you like peanut butter? And I was like, yeah, I like peanut butter. Well, I think she'd been keeping track of everything I really liked, all the food I was really liking and all the food <laughs> I was, I mean, I liked everything. But, the, you know, like two houses down the way, the woman, I get there and she's like, I've got peanut butter. <laughs> she holds up a jar that she bought specifically for me. And I just loved that they were like, she loves pizza. She loves ice cream. Oh, and she loves peanut butter. You got to get her some peanut butter. <laughs> oh, the only other thing I'd want to say is that I did stay with 68 families and there wasn't a meal that sticks out as like being bad. Like I am a, a great eater. I like eating everything. And I, I think that food tastes good when it's prepared for you. And so I was just always so grateful and I'm, I'm sure I always got seconds and thirds. So yeah, I have only, only good memories. <laughs> and I was just going to ask, are you a creamy or crunchy peanut butter? <laughs> crunchy. Okay. And then if I'm traveling, I prefer no salt because if you don't stir enough, all the salt settles to the bottom and then you get like those terrible salty bits at the end. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but it's a shock. I don't know if it has, but now I'm, <laughs> I have watch something out. to watch out you for. You obviously <laughs> are less lazy than I am because I'm too lazy, I guess, to stir my peanut butter well enough. <laughs> And the other tangent I wanted to go down, also related to your trip, though. So, again, tangent very loosely here. On your site, beyondabook.org, you have some stats from your butter biking trip. And one of those stats is that you had four flat tires. So were any of those, I mean, a flat tire is never convenient, but what was the worst one out of those? It's funny because I was just thinking about the flats and I could only remember one of them. And so that means only one of them was inconvenient. <laughs> um, and it, it was the first flat of the trip. And I write about it in the book cause I was in, I was in the desert of Mexico. I, I was on this long stretch of road and it was right before April. And it was art. It was just already blasting hot. And I looked through, I hear the, like the air out of the tire, like the pss sound and it's just like nah man and I didn't have that much water and I was racing to get to the next town and I look around and there's just not a, a a piece of shade there is not even like a little tiny bit of shade for for as long as as far as I can see but then I I see oh there's a culvert um under the road so I walk my bike and steer my bike and go under the culvert and it was like just so refreshing it was great. And I changed my changed my flat in the culvert, um, no problems. And then I ended up actually sleeping a few nights in those culverts because they were such great, such great out of the way um, and also really cool camping spots. Cool as in refreshing, not as in like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes a refreshing spot is also cool as in, wow, <laughs> like I needed this. <laughs> it was. It was actually. <laughs> well, I'm glad you, you persevered. On that, that just triggered a, a bike story. When I was in the Dominican Republic, I was riding on a mountainous sort of terrain, and I I would say, especially back then, I was not really a a biker. Like I'd maybe go for a leisurely ride around the neighborhood, but no no kind of mountain action. And probably like five minutes into the trip, the chain just fell off of this bike that we. I mean, it was a borrowed bike that hundreds of people used already, so it was. Not not in the best condition. And I, I mean, I don't have 
bike repair experience. So I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And this local Dominican boy who was probably like nine just walked up to me and I just kind of pointed at the thing and like shrugged, like, do you know what to do? And he, he just, he <laughs> just comes he? over. Yeah. He, he, I don't even think he had any tools. I think he just used his hands and like yanked it off to like where it needed to be. And then he like reattached it and sent me on my way. And we, we just like gave each other a high five. I was like, thanks man. You're awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. I remember on the on my trip, I was lost somewhere in Mexico. I mean, not super lost, but like, I didn't know where I was lost. And I found this little seven-year-old boy. He must I mean, seven or eight, same, and is like, hey, can you tell me where I am? Can you help me out? And it's like, yeah, go that way. And it's like, thank you. So it's good to... It's good to not underestimate the, the the helpfulness and the skills of young people. Yes. Yeah. They are very... Uh... They have a, a, a. I feel like they're better at retaining things uh, sometimes than adults. I know that I've been asked for directions as an adult, and I think I'm giving them the right ones. And then as soon as they leave, I'm like, "Wait a minute, that might not be right." <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And I'll, and they're brave, right? You know, they're the ones that are going to come up to the random stranger. Yes. And and see what's up. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the other things that you do as well to support the Butterbike trip is you have watercolor prints, which are super cool. I'm looking at the little slideshow now on the side <laughs> um, that goes through them. How did, how did those come about? Do you, do you create those or do you partner with someone or how do you, how do you come up with these designs? The watercolor started on an, on another trip. I was um, canoeing the Missouri river with some friends and we were staying with, people and we thought oh we like we wanted to give them a token of appreciation a little 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 thank you and when you're traveling it's hard to carry stuff and like what do people really want and and so we started painting watercolor paintings with the Missouri River water I mean and paint but the water part of watercolor came from the Missouri River and we would just give these little postcard sized paintings to people that we stayed with and I really loved doing it and I, the people that I stayed with or that we stayed with, I could tell appreciated it. So I brought watercolors on my, on my bike tour and it was a great way like at night to decompress and just paint in my tent and I got way better. And and one of the things that I love about, about my trip is that I, I realized that the Monarch was teaching me how to watercolor, right? Without the Monarch, without the trip, I wouldn't have been practicing every night. So I really, I really have begun begun to see or see the monarch as one of my teachers, and it, the same goes for the the book. Like I, I wrote blogs, but that's as far as it went. And when I realized I wanted to write a book, the monarchs were the ones that were kind of they were the ones encouraging me, and so I see them also as my my writing teacher in a lot of way, in a lot of ways. Awesome! Very cool! Very cool! And one of the things I like to do with this podcast. And I always say it's because it, it's less work for me to do is to ask you a question you wish you were asked more frequently. And oh. with yours, you've touched on it a little bit, but what's the biggest impact that you hope your trip will have? I hope it inspires people to see what's in their own yards. And I often, I say a lot in the books, a similar variation of the same thing, which is we we look, but we don't see. And so I hope that people will start to notice all the brilliant creatures that visit them, that live next to them, that are their neighbors. 
and, and not take them for granted, but instead celebrate them and become their voice and share the message with as many people as they can too. And, and yeah, just help, help people learn to appreciate this brilliant planet. Yeah, I think that's very well said. And I I have certainly been guilty of that, of of really seeing things but not not taking the time to appreciate them. And so I I I honestly think this pandemic has kind of helped in that sense of giving more like to get away from things, I'll go outside and just kind of reflect and be like, "Oh, this is very nice. Like I didn't even know this this wonderful park was like four blocks from my house. Like that's fantastic." Yeah, I, I, I'm guilty of it too. And, and I have to remind myself too to, to do the same thing. And for me, the, the pandemic has also taught me to, that you don't need to go anywhere to have an adventure. And I, I've honestly considered the last year, I've been calling it for me the year of the tree. And I've just really, really gotten to know like specific trees that I live near. And rather than following a migrant, I've been just following these, these really incredible creatures these incredible plants that that don't go anywhere but still have so many stories to tell yeah trees are so cool we actually had a tree fall down in our backyard (laughs) fun fun fact uh it was certainly i it wasn't a huge one more you know just a little a little thin uh spindly one but still kind of weird to wake up and it's like ah yeah (laughs) that's scary but hopefully hopefully yours are uh, far more durable. It sounds like they are. Hanging <laughs> we'll out. see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I live. I'm I'm living in kind of the middle of the woods right now. I I didn't have a spot, a main spot. This is the longest I've stayed at anywhere in in a long time, almost 20 years. So um, I got lucky, and a f- friends invited me to stay on their property, and they've got eight acres of coniferous forest and. It's yeah. It's been a. I, I wouldn't have been able to make it in pretty much anywhere else. So I feel really grateful. That sounds very glorious. So for people that buy your book, Bicycling with Butterflies, what can they expect in there? What will they find? They'll expect to find the a bunch of monarch science. And for that part, I say it's not about memorizing science. It's just about. For every little facet of the migration, it's about just not holding the numbers, but holding the idea that it's just so complicated and so brilliant and so perfect. And then they'll also find lots of stories of adventure, of what it's like to ride your bike following monarchs through Mexico, Canada, and the United States. And they'll also find my best attempt at at at, show, at sharing with sharing with people why I love this planet and. I describe it as, so I basically describe it as part science, part adventure, part love letter to nature. I like that. That's a good mix of stuff too. <laughs> right. Like I, I'm, I'm trying to tell the story of the monarch through a, a lens of a bike tour. And it's actually been really effective because, you know, I'll be in New York say, and people will look at me and they'll look at my bike and they'll be like, you biked here from Mexico. And then I'll be like, yeah. And you see that little butterfly over there? Like their great grandma started in Mexico and it's taken three generations to get here. And that is really quite, Oh, that's more extraordinary than anything I'm doing. And, and so I think putting that human scale on the migration puts into perspective how, how amazing the monarch migration is. Yeah. That's a, that is a very stunning 
perspective to put it into scale. So that's fantastic. One other thing that you you had mentioned uh, beforehand that I think is a cool thing too is planting milkweed to increase the natural habitat for monarchs. So could you talk a little bit about that and how, how that helps? Milkweed is just an incredible plant. I think its name is so boring. It doesn't do the plant any justice, but it's this, it's called milkweed because if you tear a leaf, often this like milky looking latex sap will seep out. And it's that sap, that latex sap is sticky and it's also poisonous. So most herbivores avoid it, but monarchs actually have learned how to to eat the milkweed and actually sequester or store the poison in their body, rendering them poisonous and protected. And it, the milkweed is the only food source of the monarch caterpillar. So it's for all the mathematicians out there, it's a very simple equation. Milkweed equals monarchs. No milkweed equals no monarchs. And the the one of the reasons monarchs have seen dramatic declines is because of habitat loss and if you look around you'll see why like there's a lot of green grass lawns there's a lot of pavement there's a lot of development there's a lot of farms and so each one of those used to be a home for a monarch and now it's not and so there's a, a revolution happening to re replace and return the prairie return native lands to to the planet and and that is happening in backyards and front yards and city parks and roadside ditches and it's it's really amazing and and every everyone can do it so you find a bit of lawn and you plant native plants whichever ones you like there's lots and lots of different native plants for every everyone to choose from and then and then milkweed too especially if you live on in the range of the monarch and doing that the monarchs will come to you they'll thank you with these visits and I saw monarchs in farm fields in Texas. I saw them at, in small gardens and in every state. And I even saw a monarch in New York City, which just goes to show if you, if you, plant, if you plant it, they will come. And everyone can be part of the solution, which is a really great conservation opportunity that, that the monarch is offering us. Yeah, absolutely. I always am very pleased when I drive around Texas and see monarchs, it's just like such a cool, like I'm, I'm not expecting it sometimes. And it's just like, whoa, that like, it like they immediately catch your eye and you're just, you're just drawn to them. It's so cool. Yeah. I, every single monarch, I tell kids that I had this thing, I had a dance called my monarch happy dance, which is where I flailed about and scared drivers who steered far around me. But <laughs> But I celebrated every monarch encounter I saw. And the more you see, the more you notice. And and I actually remember being in, in Austin and looking up and there was just like a river of monarchs, like one or two every few every few seconds flowing above the traffic. And I wanted to just stop everyone and just be like, get out of your car, look. <laughs> um, but hopefully, hopefully they looked when they got to a, a spot where that was safe. <laughs> Yes, yes. Especially, yeah, near near downtown, you're basically bumper to bumper a lot of the time anyway. You might as well enjoy what's going on around you. Exactly. That's Maybe that's why there's traffic jams, to have give people opportunity to look up. Yes, yes. It all it all. <laughs> now it does. Now. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> now, we always like to wrap up with a top three. And 
I think we covered. I like. I like to ask this for inspiration again. Like, like I said earlier, the more work uh, you can do for <laughs> me to to ask these questions is always welcome. But I think we kind of covered these things. So I'm going to do a wild hard turn as your top three because you are presenting a lot at schools and chatting with kids. What are your three favorite games that you played in your childhood? Oh. Well, I wrote, I raised tadpoles. Does that, does that count as a game? Absolutely. Okay, good. I raised tadpoles, and that, of course, is why I love frogs today. So, <laughs> um, I like I was really into it, and I had like these terrariums, and I wanted to be like a official frog zookeeper if that exists. Um, and I I raised the tadpoles, and the first set of tadpoles they actually were mosquito larvae, but that's a, another story. I did get tadpoles eventually, but I raised tadpoles. I played with beanie babies like you wouldn't believe. And I always say like my first access to nature were beanie babies. And in college, my parents must have found like five rolls of film and they were all of beanie babies in the garden that I'd like, (laughs) like posed. (laughs) And then what else did I play? I, well, I rode my bike a lot, which is probably not a surprise. And yeah, spent a, I spent a lot of time riding my bike and thinking I was hot stuff because I could bike around the, the block without without hands. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I think I was. I was pretty good at it. I mean, that's much better than I can do. So I'm impressed, <laughs> if nothing else. You've impressed the host of this podcast. <laughs> well, my work here is done. <laughs> well, not quite done because you got to tell people if they want to check out the book, if they want to learn more about the monarchs, about you, where can they find you? I have a website that is beyondabook.org, which is kind of ironic. Um, but you'll read my book and then you'll go beyond. You'll get out in the, the roadside ditches and really get to know the monarchs that way too. So beyondabook.org. I have I'm on Facebook at Beyond a Book, and you can buy you can buy Bicycling with Butterflies wherever books are sold. And I encourage folks to support support their local bookstores. Um, they've been doing a great job setting up virtual events for me, and and those virtual events are are possible because because of of local bookshops. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on and chatting. This is I want to go outside and see what I can see now. <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. And of course, we got to wrap up with a corny joke, as we always do it. And I even found one that is topical to our discussion today. What does a chatty caterpillar become? Uh, A a flutter. No, I do. A social butterfly. Good afternoon, people. (laughs) I am going to steal that. I love it. Please do. Please do. Good People, Cool Things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you were a fan of this episode, go ahead and hit that follow button. That helps more people hear the show. As always, you can send me a message, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Thank you to all of the guests who have been on Good People, Cool Things. You can check out all the old episodes via goodpeoplecoolthings.com. As always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 